It's Friday, December 22nd, 2023. I'm Albert Moeller, and this is The Briefing, a daily analysis of news and events from a Christian worldview. Well, Christmas is just a matter of a couple of days away, and Christmas Eve is coming this Lord's Day. And I first want to begin by simply conveying Merry Christmas to all. And uh, on this Friday, before we go into the weekend with Christmas coming so quickly, about to explode on the calendar, and uh, as Christians are gathered together, and so many families even right now are in transit, and uh, as all of this demands so much of our attention, we thought we'd do a special Christmas mailbox edition because listeners sent in so many questions about Christmas. So the timing just seems to be perfect. So here we go. The first question is from a four-year-old little boy, Judah. The question is, why did Jesus have to come as a baby? Why couldn't he have come as a man? Why was Jesus born in a manger? Okay, three questions. Judah, I love the questions. And the last one I'm going to say is that Jesus wasn't born in a manger. He was born and then he was put in a manger. So that's an important thing to say. So after Jesus was born, when his mother was holding him, when she put him down, like we would put down a baby in a crib or something very much like a crib, she put him down in a manger, which is a food trough for animals, and soft and small. It would contain him and keep him from falling out, and probably had straw in it to serve as kind of a cushion. So it's a very sweet thing, but it shows uh, how humble Jesus was to be born as a baby, not put in on a throne or in a royal crib, but instead simply uh, laying in a manger. And that's why we sing that Wonderful Christmas song, Away in a Manger, No Crib for a Bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. Well, that was the last question. Again, not born in a manger, but laying in a manger, put in a manger after he was born. Uh, Just like we have to put a baby down, the manger is where Jesus was laying. The first question, why did Jesus have to come as a baby? And then the second question flows from it, why couldn't he have come as a man? What a great question, Judah. That one excites me. And that one really needs to be asked. And so, Judah, I'll tell you, there are a lot of people who are not four, but 40 and uh, older than that who need to think about this. Why was Jesus born as a baby? First of all, because there was biblical prophecy about a baby and uh, the promised Messiah. But we also have a New Testament biblical answer to the question, why did Jesus come as a baby? And it points to the fact that Jesus fully identifies with us. He fully identifies with we human beings, the sinners he came to save. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And you know, the only way he can be just like us, and the only way he can be tempted in every way we're tempted, Judah, is if he was a baby, as well as a child and a teenager and a young person. And so, you know, this is a part of the love of God for us. When we say that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, he sent that baby who was the king of the entire universe to come to be born as a baby. So again, Judah, what a great Bible name. What a great theological question. Thank you. And then a mom sent in a question, and uh, she's got three a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-month-old. And during Advent devotionals, the five-year-old little boy asked if the Christmas spirit is the same thing as the Holy Spirit. Well, that's an interesting question also, Holt. 
And, uh, you know, this gets to the word spirit. The most important thing to know is that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about God. We're talking about a person. The Holy Spirit, for instance, we speak to, we speak of him. And we speak of the Holy Spirit as a person, the same way we speak of mom and dad or sister or brother, as a person. But we also use the word spirit sometimes to mean mood. And that's where it's really good to ask the question you ask, Holt. When we talk about the Christmas spirit, we're not talking about a person, we're talking about a mood. And that means generosity, hope, joy. And you know what, Holt? You're a very careful listener, and I appreciate the fact that you're listening carefully and you hear the word spirit used in two different ways, and it's good for Christians to know which way we mean it when we say the Christmas spirit on the one hand and the Holy Spirit on the other hand. We mean two very different things by the word spirit. All right, someone else. Uh, this is Adam wrote in about Jesus, born a babe in Bethlehem. And uh, he says, I've been doing some reading about Jesus' incarnation in preparation for Christmas. Obviously, Jesus was born as an infant, so presumably he did all the things infants do, which is mostly eat, sleep, and, well, you know the rest. That's just how he wrote it. And yes, I do know the rest, Adam. And I know exactly what you mean. Quote, it seems theologians also assume that Jesus cried, fussed, and kept Mary and Joseph up at night. I'm wondering if it is inconsistent for theologians and others to assume this, given that the Bible does not really speak to that issue, and uh, if it is right to assume those actions by the baby Jesus. How can that be reconciled with him being born with a perfect nature? Okay, you ask a theologian, Adam, so we got to get particular here for a moment. Jesus wasn't born with a perfect nature from eternity. Throughout eternity, Jesus is perfect. His nature is perfect. He assumed human flesh. He became like us. And I go back to what I said earlier in the biblical teaching that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He fully identified with us as human beings, yet without sin. And so that means that in his identification with us, he was just like us, yet without sin. So here's the thing. When you look at a baby fussing, a, a baby sleeping, a baby eating, uh, a baby making a mess with food, a baby doing what babies do with a diaper, there's no sin in that. There is no sin in it. He is just like we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus did everything a human infant does except sin. He understood fully what it meant to be an infant except for sin. So, Adam, thanks for the question, and uh, thanks for thinking about these things. We go from Adam to Ashley. Ashley asked another good question. We're preparing for Christmas, she writes. My family and I have had a lot of conversations about Jesus' birth, and in particular his lineage. We're curious if there is anything inconsistent about the biblical authors describing that Jesus was born in the line of Joseph when he doesn't actually share any of Joseph's DNA. Thank you for considering our question, and have a Merry Christmas. Well, thank you, Ashley. And, you know, as you're looking at the genealogy, or you could say genealogies provided for us of Jesus, the most important thing to recognize is that the line that goes through Joseph is a part of biblical prophecy, because we are told that uh, Jesus would be born as a successor to David, would sit on David's throne, and he was born in Bethlehem, which is the city of David. And it was Joseph who was identified with that line and lineage who took Mary who was then great with child to Bethlehem, and that's why Jesus was born there. So it's a part of biblical prophecies, a part of God's purpose reflected in every dimension of our salvation, beginning with Jesus being born in Bethlehem, just as had been prophesied. Next question comes from David, 
and he makes reference to a mainline Protestant denomination that's identified as uh, Presbyterian Church USA. That's the more liberal mainline Protestant Presbyterian denomination. And he says that this particular church held an annual lessons and carol service, and it, I'm just going to read it, quote, uh, featured a local rabbi and a lay leader of a Muslim-run interfaith organization as readers, end quote. So I understand the issue, David, and that's about as illegitimate, ill-advised, and I think contrary to the gospel as might be imagined. Uh, It's one thing to have friends, including a lay leader of a Muslim-run interfaith organization, a local rabbi, and to be on good relations and uh, to be uh, involved in conversation with them, to share a meal with them, to share an honest conversation with them. That's a very different thing than inviting them into a Christian service uh, held by a Christian congregation about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when it comes to the rabbi and to the Muslim, insofar as the Muslim represents Islam, they hold beliefs incompatible with the very truths that are being declared and the promises that are being assured at an Advent or a Christmas service, period. I I find this to be uh, what happens, not just when the world goes woke, but when, uh, quite frankly, churches and denominations lose their mind. Okay, I knew this question was going to come. It had to come, and it came from a mom writing on behalf of herself and her husband about the massive moral and theological dilemma of Santa Claus. And uh, they don't have children yet. So I appreciate the fact this Christian mom and dad are thinking this through before they have children. And I will simply say I don't think there's a clear answer to this, Amy, other than we can never lie to our children. We can never tell a lie. So we can never speak in such a way that we are found by our children to have misled them. Now, that doesn't mean that at every stage in life, we are the absolute demythologizer. In other words, uh, whether it is, uh, you know, supposedly a talking pumpkin, or it's uh, what someone calls the Easter Bunny, or it's Santa Claus, I don't think it's the Christian parent's absolute responsibility to uh, throw himself or herself in front of the child and say, turn your eyes away, that's not real, you know, etc. I think loving Christian parents, fully committed to the scripture, fully committed to the gospel, loving their children, will know how not to lie to their children, but also how to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And the extent to which, for instance, Santa Claus in particular can become a great point of departure about even why we talk about Santa Claus and the rootage of that in the saint tradition of medieval Christianity. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things going on But the one thing that must not go on is that we mislead our children. I think that's the one thing I know to say here. Okay, Mark writes in about when Jesus was born, and that is to say what season of the year. And by the way, Mark, you asked the question quite intelligently. And uh, I will simply say that there is no historical evidence that Jesus was born on the 25th of December and uh, that he was born in what we call December or that he was even born uh, there in that particular hinge between one year and the next and the hinge of the seasons, it could very well be that Jesus was born in a warmer season. And so December the 25th and the entire process of, of celebrating Christmas, it can't be tied to what's believed to be the historic claim that Jesus was born on this day. I think that's another act of Christian honesty where we say this is a date on the Christian calendar to be kind of opposite the celebration of the resurrection in the spring, we have the celebration of Christmas in the winter. And uh, I think, by the way, there are all kinds of historical, cultural reasons why winter celebrations, uh, especially inside celebrations, 
end up accentuating the family tradition and all the rest. So I'll simply say there is nothing wrong. So I am not speaking here as an absolute Puritan. I I think I'm a Puritan of some sort, uh, but I'm not an absolutist and come to say it's wrong to have holidays and it's wrong to have uh, arbitrary days in which you celebrate and observe certain things in the church. I think we can take these things to extremes that are unbiblical, but uh, I think it's wonderful. For instance, because not just inside the church, that's the first place this happens. I've had some of the greatest opportunities for conversation about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ in the last few weeks, precisely because thoughts are focused and uh, preaching is focused and Bible readings are focused. And, uh, you know, I'll simply say in humility, human beings need focus. And so rightly understood, these two great festivals of the church the Festival of the Incarnation and the Festival of the Resurrection, they are not to be, obviously, the only time we talk about these things, but focal moments every year when we really focus on what it means to believe that Jesus has come in human flesh, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and what it means that He died on the cross and was raised on the third day, and that the tomb is empty. So, Mark, I want to say it'd be absolutely wrong to say that December 25 is uh, the day that Jesus was born, or to say that even in calendar proximity in the year, we know exactly when that was. I won't take time to get into the arguments about when exactly it probably happened during the year, but the important thing is if we make that separation, we make it honestly, the time of the year works. We just need to be honest about what we're celebrating on December the 25th and why. Great question sent in by Michael. He uh, is talking about the incarnation and the true humanity of Christ He says, uh, this evening, my wife brought up the question of when exactly the incarnation took place. If life begins at conception, then it should follow that Jesus is fully God and fully man as soon as he was conceived in Mary's womb. I guess I'm just uncertain how it can be that Jesus was fully God, even as he was physically a mere embryo. Any insight or clarification will be appreciated. Well, Michael, I appreciate the question. I appreciate your wife raising it and you sending it, because here's a great opportunity for clarification. And uh, when did Christ become man? The answer is biblically at his conception. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost in the Virgin Mary. And at that moment of conception, when he first came to be as the smallest embryonic unit imaginable, he was truly God, truly man, as much truly God and truly man then as in his adult life and at his crucifixion and at his resurrection. But that also requires us to look a little more closely at the embryo, even when, to be honest, we can't see it because it's microscopically so small. Here's the thing we need to know. The entire human being is there. And that is so important, not only for biblical theology, so important, not only for Christmas, it's so important for the pro-life argument. The entire human person is there, is there as the embryo. There is no external genetic information that will be brought into that embryo. It is all there, all of it. All of you genetically was there the moment you were conceived, and uh, all of your wife genetically was there when she was conceived. But just because we can't see it, that doesn't mean it's not there. And uh, so if you're going to ask this question, and I'm glad you did because it's the opportunity to think about this, let's just say that let's go to birth. Well, think about the transformations that happens between infancy and adulthood. So if we decide that it's at some point that the incarnation becomes full, then frankly, we bought ourselves a whole pot of trouble because we're not going to know how to answer at any point 
the only answer is the first point. And thankfully, that's where the scripture answers the question. And that's where the word conception, and uh, here, we know in the biblical sense, that means uh, what we would call fertilization. When it takes place, Jesus, truly man, truly God, from the beginning. Another great question asked by Jane, as she says, our thoughts are naturally turned to the sun leaving heaven, speaking of Christmas and Advent, coming to earth and taking on human form. And, and here's the question, quote, is there any sense the Son of God gave up his deity in taking on human form and becoming Jesus, end quote. I need to answer that quickly and succinctly with the word no. There is absolutely no sense in which the Son of God gave up his deity in order to obey the Father's will in the incarnation and becoming truly human. He gave up none of his deity at any point. And uh, we would be a bit confused about this if the Scripture didn't really define this carefully. And so, for the sake of time, I'm going to look at one text where this is defined in a way that I think is very helpful to us, and that is Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, where Paul writes, quote, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him." and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's a biblical text I know you know. And what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 in these verses is that it is true in no sense that Jesus gave up his deity, any of his deity. The Son gave up no deity in order to assume human flesh and to identify with us in the incarnation by becoming like us, truly like us. But what the Son of God did give up was the sublime, infinite pleasure of being with the Father in communion, in heaven, with God, without taking on the burden of human flesh in obedience to the will of the Father. The Son of God gave up some of the privileges he had with the Father in order to come to be one of us, among us. He gave up none of his deity. He did give up some of the privileges of that deity for the time of his earthly ministry. And I think that's a very important point to make. But next, another sweet question from an eight-year-old. This eight-year-old is Mabry. Why did God choose Mary to be the mother of Jesus? What a sweet question. Why did God choose David to be the king of Israel? Why did God choose Adam uh, to be the very first man? Why did God choose Isaiah to be his prophet there in the court of the king? Why did God choose Mary? You know, maybe the best answer I can give is that only the Father knows why he chose Mary, because we do know that God is sovereign. He's absolutely in control, and we know that everything he does is right. And so what he did in choosing Mary is that which was absolutely right. Of all the women who have ever lived at all times, he chose exactly the right young woman to be the mother of Jesus. Mary is also presented to us, Mabry, as a model of obedience. Her response to the angel is the perfect statement of her obedience. She said, according to the gospel of Luke chapter 1, verse 38, 
Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. End quote. Such a sweet statement. Mary was saying, if that is God's purpose for me, then I am going to do it and I'm going to praise God for it. Now, it's also important to understand what the angel said to Mary. Because when the angel spoke to Mary, and again, this is in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, the angel spoke to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So why did God favor Mary in this way? We don't know. But we have God's favor and Mary's obedience put together in one very important paragraph. And uh, that's the beautiful picture when we understand the role of Mary here in the story of Jesus. Trevor also wrote in an interesting question, and I I hear this expressed one way or another fairly often. This is the disagreement between Protestants and Roman Catholics over Mary. And uh, he's speaking of a Roman Catholic friend who, quote, told me that Mary was perfect because Jesus needed a holy vessel, end quote. Well, here's one of the problems we have to watch in theology. We can't speculate about what must have been required if the Scripture doesn't tell us that. And the Scripture doesn't tell us that. The Scripture nowhere says that Mary was perfect. The Scripture nowhere speaks of the assumption of Mary into heaven. The Scripture nowhere speaks of Mary being the product of what the Catholic Church declares as immaculate conception. And I do believe that Mary was holy in the sense that even as she was a sinner, she was chosen by God and was obedient to the calling. And she was the vessel in which Christ came into his earthly existence. And she was obedient. She exalted God. But, you know, Mary's not presented in the New Testament as perfect. She's certainly not presented as without sin. Mary is presented, for example, in a situation at the wedding at Cana in Galilee. And a situation is clear. She doesn't fully understand who Jesus is. And Jesus basically tells her that. So, Trevor, I just want to answer the question you're asking and uh, just say, you know, there are a lot of disagreements between Catholics and uh, evangelicals, and uh, this is one worth having, but I do not accept for a moment that we have a less exalted picture of Mary than the official Roman Catholic doctrines, including Immaculate Conception, Assumption into Heaven, and all the rest. But it's because I believe Mary is singled out because of her obedience, not because of her perfection. I think that makes her for us even more precious, not less so. You know, some questions that come to us uh, kind of come out of the blue as we hear something, we see something, and we go to wait just a minute. And, uh, you know, that may be particularly true of a lot of the songs that uh, we hear and sing at Christmas. And so I just want to say that a good question comes from William about the Christmas song, Do You Hear What I Hear? And he points to the reference to the king saying to the people everywhere, pray for peace. As the song says, pray for peace, people everywhere. Okay, so I don't think any king said that. Uh, I don't think Herod said that. I'm quite sure Caesar Augustus didn't say that on December the 25th. And so I I look at this question and say, William, you've got a good ear. And uh, it's uh, good that we understand where we have biblical revelation, inerrant and infallible, and where we have some kind of tradition. And frankly, when it comes to music, sometimes there's more license taken with what people will say they're willing to sing than what they're willing to say. And, you know, I'm not at war with that song. Uh, I think I've never actually heard it as making a concrete claim, but uh, if there's any risk of it, I think we probably, you know, ought to be cognizant of it. And uh, in any event, we ought to listen to what we are being told through song and what we are saying with song. 
And that's why I would always lean into the great hymns of the Christian faith that are not only musically tested, but more importantly, biblically and theologically tested as well. We have to come to an end of this edition of The Briefing. I want to thank you, as always, for questions, and I want to thank you for the privilege of having this time together. And I simply want to speak as a Christian to say my great hope is that everyone hearing my voice knows or will know the Christmas joy that comes from knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and understanding that this is not just a season of sentimentality. It is that. Unashamedly, it is that. It is a season of the celebration of the thunderous truth that God in Christ reconciled the world unto himself, that God saves sinners, and he did so through the babe born in Bethlehem. There is much more to be said, but, you know, at some point we simply have to say to each other a word of encouragement and hope and doctrinal declaration. And somehow I think we know when Christians speak to one another and say, Merry Christmas, that's what we mean. And so to you and yours, may you have a most wonderful Christ-honoring Christmas And to all of you, Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening to The Briefing. For more information, go to my website at albertmoeller.com. You can follow me on Twitter by going to twitter.com forward slash albertmoeller. For information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Like you, I'll be celebrating Christmas with my family. Lord willing, we'll be back with the next edition of The Briefing on Monday, January 8th, 2024. Until then, Merry Christmas.